people are being punished as we speak and people are losing their livelihoods. I mean, it feels to me like a modern version of McCarthyism. People are being named, shamed, reputations ruined. I mean, there's nothing worse than being called a bigot. I mean, it will destroy your career. As the crow flies on the Vance Crow podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, I interviewed a woman named Claire Fox from all the way over in London. Claire and I met a few years ago when I was working at Monsanto. Claire runs an organization called the Academy of Ideas, where she puts together some of the most fascinating, exciting, intimate, dangerous debates that are going on anywhere in the world today. And as a person representing Monsanto, I was quite used to every time I asked, hey, is there a place that we could come on and talk about our perspectives? people slamming the door in our faces, but not Claire. Claire met me on the streets of London and took me up to her office where she was running a ragtag group of six people that are dedicated to the idea that free speech, debate, arguing about how we think about things is the foundation under which Western society thrives. I find myself admiring Claire on a scale that I don't really find myself connecting with other people. She has taken on a life that cannot be easy, is fraught with danger all around, and she always has this positive attitude, this way that she continues to believe that we can build society, we can do good things no matter what place we're at. She was a major leader in the Brexit uh, follow-up after the votes were counted and the UK decided to leave the European Union. There were a lot of people in the powerful that said, oh, no, this was a mistake. We've got to reverse this. And Claire was one of those people that brought together a huge number of coalitions that normally would have not seen eye to eye, but together, because they were pushing against the establishment that wanted to keep the UK in the European Union, they found a way to work together and to build something that nobody had ever imagined would happen in the modern world. So I'm really excited for you to hear this interview. It's one of those that made my heart speed up as I wrote Claire an email to finally ask her to come on the podcast. And throughout the entire conversation, I found myself mesmerized by her ability to articulate an idea. We're going to get to that interview, but I want to let everybody know about the telepresence basics class that I've put together. So I was working for a board of directors that when we got on Zoom calls, you took these people that were high professionals. They looked great. They sounded great. They knew what they were doing. But when they got on a video call, suddenly they looked, I don't know, not so great. Their way they were presenting themselves, the way they sounded, everything about their interaction took them away from being the consummate professional that they had always been in regular life. So I created a small training for that group and it went over so well that I realized I could start doing this for clients. After doing it for clients for a few times, many of whom loved it and were willing to pay at about $150 a seat, I realized I could also offer this to people that didn't have an organization um, bringing it together, but people that wanted to get better at how do I look and sound and how do I create the background that will allow me to have conversations that are great, that are the kind that I was able to do when I was in person. So I put together a 70-minute course, and for $39, you can get your hands on it. But podcast listeners, if you go to the uh, to the, the page listed in the link below, you can find a discount code that will allow you to take $10 off of the cost. This is because if you're a podcast listener, you know the value of good sound and looking good, and I'm excited for you to take this class, see if it changes the way that you look and sound, and then tell others about it. So check out the link below with the discount code, and I would be really excited to hear 
how you think the class went. Send me some before and after photos. All right, thanks for this. Now we're going to go to that interview with Claire Fox. Claire Fox, welcome to the podcast. Great to talk to you. Great to see you across all these miles. I cannot believe that we are reuniting once again after many years when I met you as the head of what was then called the Institute of Ideas, but is now the Academy of Ideas, where you bring together people from all over the world and hold the most rigorous debates maybe in the world right now. And uh, I can't think of a better guest to have as we have the wild changes to culture going on. So I'm really excited to talk with you. Great. It's, it's goodness knows when we launched the Battle of Ideas Festival, we said that free speech was important and that things like the culture wars were not just confined to universities. A lot of people thought we were making it up. Um, excuse me. Here we go. And uh, I mean, if it wasn't for coronavirus, we, we have a program Battle of Ideas Festival planned this year, but of course we haven't got a venue that will host it. So we'll probably be holding it in the, the beginning of 2021 if we get round to it. But uh, well, not if we get round to it, we're allowed to go in anywhere without social distancing. Because as you say, the joy of something like a Battle of Ideas Festival is that you're bumping into people from all over the place with all sorts of different political perspectives in corridors and having coffees and chatting and you know hundreds of speakers and thousands of attendees and obviously in a period where you have to avoid people because of social distancing it's not got the same vibe we, we've taken all our work online i mean i'm never not in a zoom debate we, we, we've carried on working throughout the lockdown uh, which has been quite a strong lockdown in the uk and but it's not the same. You know, that's been great, but it's just not the same. So let's talk about the battle of ideas, because in the U.S., as far as I know, there is nothing that goes on like this, which is why I hopped on a plane when I was working at Monsanto and flew over to see what you guys were doing. But for people that have never seen a battle of ideas, don't have a concept for debate because yeah. it's not a part of our regular culture. So we try and uh, take the big issues of the time and uh, work on panel discussions with people from all sorts of perspectives. On over one weekend, I think we have over a hundred panel debates, uh, you know, three, 400 speakers and a thousand, and it's a public event. So the other thing is it's not professional, it's over one weekend, we cram it in. At any one time there's 10 or 11 debates going on, you can go into which one. They're not formal debates, they're not for and against, but they're attempts at saying there are always different perspectives. You might learn something if you kind of listen and we also have a USP of saying 50% of the time will be handed over to the audience. So it really is a very lively public forum and we've over, we've been doing it now, I think 15, 16 years and it's just grown from strength to strength. Our slogan is free speech allowed and you know that didn't sound very radical maybe when we started it but as time has gone on <laughs> saying that you support free speech even has become a controversial thing to say and we've tackled a lot of the issues around the culture wars but we also have strands of debates on the economy on science we've been concerned i suppose about things like the precautionary principle uh, nerve, you know uh, risk aversion um, but everything, you know, you could be discussing Beethoven in one room uh, at one time and then go on and talk about uh, GM crops, another room. Uh, well, when, and then when, when I was when I was there, the 
what I found was at first you look at it and you're like, oh, those are the debates I know about, right? Whether it's GMOs versus something else. But you get into like the weird recesses of the world where you have a mom come in and talk about how sexual assault laws put on minors made it so her son that urinated in public is now considered a sex offender. And you're sitting there being like, am I supposed to be hearing this? I don't <laughs> think you're allowed to talk about that. And, but then there are thousands of people around you that are excited to engage in the debate in a way that you can't do normally. Yeah, I think that we've we've tried to without being without playing the kind of shock jock role. We don't go for kind of having uh, being outrageous, but we know that that if you dig deep underneath a lot of subjects, there's conversations that people want to have. They want to be able to ask questions about controversies around you know trans issues you know that they know there's a line they know there's a, a position you're meant to adopt but they don't really understand it can we have this conversation can we challenge some of the orthodoxies and i think that that's all we were trying to do is to create a space for public debate where you would not be shut down by somebody saying i find that offensive but on the other hand, uh, people really did believe when we started this that it would lead to kind of riots and chaos and everyone shouting at each other. But actually, it's not like that either. It's a perfectly civilized, lively public exchange of views. I mean, it's not even that radical, is it? It's what the public square should be. It's like town hall meetings as they should be. But obviously, over the years, there's now so many things where we know in the back of our head, you, you can't say that. You know, it's kind of a, a, an internal sensor. I, I, you, you shouldn't say that. Don't ask that question. Oh my God. So we go for collecting together the best speakers who've written really interesting articles from all around the world with different perspectives who we think have said something that will make people go, do you know what? That's such an interesting thought. I'm going to now speak myself and ask a question or make a point. And that's what we do. One of the talks that I remember is Lenore Skenazy. I, I can never yeah. say her last name right, but she yeah. talks about a concept called free range kids. And I remember thinking like, this will be boring. Kids are allowed to go outside and play. Why is this a controversial topic? And she started talking about the mothers that were arrested for letting their children walk to school on their own or playing on a playground by themselves. And, and you start to hear people in the audience say, I tried to bring this up in my PTA and I was booed down. And that's when you start to realize that what you're doing, Claire, what the Academy of Ideas is doing, it's so... I don't know, it, it feels dangerous, but special. Why in the world did you get into this world? Because it, it is all danger for you, I think. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily a great career move <laughs> in the sense that I could probably be a, earning a lot of money and, 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 and so on. It's, it's a bit controversial, but you know, I, I, I came from, I was a teacher for many years and actually, and, and then I, 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 I took a rather extraordinary uh, decision to, uh, to, to take on temporarily, I thought, uh, publishing a magazine which had been called Living Marxism, because I'm a lefty, um, uh, which I know uh, immediately well, people will be going, oh my God, what's she going to be like? Wait, what was it called? What was it called? Living Marxism. And we relaunched <laughs> it. Exactly. We relaunched it as LM Magazine, which was supposedly beyond left and right. We were, we were nodding. I mean, I, I, so I'm, yeah, I'm from a left wing background. But, you know, a, a form of left wing politics that I think is far removed from the kind of leftish social justice warriors and the identity politics obsessives of today. 
And, you know, we could have an argument about left and right, but, you know, it was a different kind of argument then. Anyway, that's what I did. And one of the things when I was teaching was I was very aware of the fact that, that I taught 16 to 18 year olds was I just didn't feel that they realized that there was more than one side to a story, you know, and they were being reared in a, a, and socialized into a society that was dominated by spin doctors who were kind of refining what people said. So you had to follow the script, which wasn't legitimate, you know, what didn't encourage intellectual introspection or, or, or bring politics to life. Uh, I felt that the newspapers were being gutted um, and there were very, there wasn't enough good journalism. And I also thought at the time that the universities were beginning to close down open debate and academic freedom was under threat. So I thought, right, I, I'm now publishing this magazine. What I'm going to do is I'm going to do live events and see what happens. And they just sold out every time. So at the end of the publishing the magazine, which was another story in 2000, I launched what was then the Institute of Ideas to full time put on debates and see if I could do something with it. And we have, we've managed to survive small operation, punch above our weight. I became better known. I didn't ever go back to teaching. I became a, a media commentator as people do as well. So our brand became known and our, the main thing was through word of mouth because we've never had any resources or money or anything. So we were never one of those kind of big festivals like that. But through word of mouth, people started to hear about us all around the world. And we were able to put on eventually things like the Battle of Ideas Festival and regular, I mean, monthly debates and so on and so forth. So um, yeah, it's been a great, it's been a great ride. And, but also hugely important to give people a voice, I think. I think, you know, one thing we've learned in politics in the UK and America, and people talk about, you know, the populist moments, is that many people don't feel they have a voice. They haven't got anywhere they can go to talk about issues, to raise concerns. It's confined to a pretty uh, limited group of people. And so the other thing is, is that I think you could say without in any way box ticking, we managed also to attract a very diverse, socially mixed group of people to our events. So you really could get, you know, working class uh, uh, families coming down from the north of England, which is kind of like the equivalent of kind of going Rust Belt or, you know, like people who wouldn't normally go to an intellectual festival and they held their own, more than held their own, with graduates and postgraduates and the top universities and all ages as well, not aimed at young people, but lots of young people come, but you can have an 18-year-old and an 80-year-old having a really lively exchange in, uh, over a debate around whether we should topple statues. That's what we do and we do it well. You do it very well. And I think you're probably a very good person to ask about the state of universities, because in the US, there's something going on right now. And I think it's actually missing the woods through the trees because it's uh, people are talking about how the, the Trump administration is going to say, if you aren't actually physically taking classes, but you're from another country, then your visa is no longer valid and you have to go home. What most people don't realize is that a huge percentage of the operating budgets of, of schools, particularly state schools, it comes from foreign students that pay full tuition. They pay private level tuition to go to a state school. And without that cash coming in on August 15th, you're going to watch universities not be able to pay their bills. So the, I think there's like an air of, um, of like, hey, we're, we're looking out for our poor graduate students. But in, in fact, it's actually a fight life or death whether or not these universities will survive. Is that going on in the UK right now? Do you see a parallel? Yes, it is going on here, although maybe not um, 
quite as politicised about overseas students. Uh, it, it's actually more pragmatic, which is that the coronavirus issue um, has led the university sector, I think, to be far too cautious about reopening the universities in October uh, in any kind of normal or proper sense. And of course, a lot of overseas students, if they're going to pay that much money, are not going to come here, right? I mean, and so in fact, by default, a lot of universities are going to lose overseas students fees and you know i think trump is making a real error here um yeah i mean you know i it, it wouldn't be the first time i'd have disagreed with him but i really think he's gonna it's counterproductive what he's doing for his own from his own point of view see the thing about overseas students in any country is, is that they come in a temporary way but they actually not only do they provide fees but they actually open up the universities, the um, I hope my internet's okay. It's saying it's unstable. Um, some of you know some of the people who are going to be your great innovators. Some of the people who are going to be your allies in terms of business in the future. You know, it's part of being part of the world. Now, it doesn't have to be tangled up with immigration or concerns about these kind of more political issues. It can just be a very positive step for any country to have people who want to study. I mean, American universities are fantastic. A lot of them, not all of them, um, are fantastic universities and you want to be world class. You want the best physicists. You want the people who are the smartest engineers. You want the brightest artists to want to study in America because that's going to help America. So if Trump wants to make America great, it's a good thing to have that. And it would be silly, it seems to me, to and counterproductive. It will lead to a lot of universities closing. Which is one I, of the I mean, I see say, your point is, on that, but I also... A, yeah. I'm I'm watching what I think is one of the great uh, dangers of a society, which is to have an indebted young class, particularly uh, a young intelligentsia class, which they're going into school, they're taking on massive amounts of debt that they may not be able to pay off in an entire lifetime of work, and and uh, and they come out with these degrees where they're they're not necessarily prepared for the office environment, yeah. and so now you have people with debt that can't contribute that is being exacerbated by the universities. And I don't see another way to stop this other than to stop the universities for a little while, to make them feel the pain of having an administrative class within the universities that are sucking money out of all the young people. Yes, and that's in a way a different uh, question though. I don't know that depriving overseas students fees is the way to go, but I do agree with five years ago, I think in the UK, they started setting a target, maybe later than that, of 50% of all young people should go to university. And I think that's ludicrous, right? Because it wasn't about removing the barriers for young uh, working class kids to go to universities. That would be brilliant because that would be allowing those people who are academic to go to university. Of course, you don't want it just to be an elitist pastime, but university is not for everyone. And through doing the you know why would, not everybody wants to live the life of the mind right that's not it's not a compulsory thing but by setting a 50 percent target you've ended up changing the job market so that effectively you now need a degree in order to get jobs that you didn't need a degree for before and these young people are ending up with massive debts a, a very swollen university sector the meaning of going to university and what a purpose of a university is almost forgotten because now it's just almost a, a road to work. And in the meantime, you, you've got this, uh, this um, 
degenerate atmosphere that's emerged on university campuses in relation to politics. And I say degenerate because there's also been at the same time the emergence of um, what you know what's called political correctness you know postmodernism. there's no such thing as truth post-structuralism and so a lot of young people are kind of embroiled in the culture wars by a university whilst actually studying at great expense to get a degree that's not actually content wise very challenging very often in order to get a job that you don't need a degree for in the first place i mean what's the point of all that and at the same time they it creates a them and us atmosphere here certainly which is if you don't go to university now it's almost as though you're written off as a young person you know if 50 percent are going and 50 percent aren't then the 50 percent who aren't are sort of somehow lesser citizens if you had a situation where those people who wanted to uh, pursue academic study which they that that should be allowed and any country should provide for that and 10 percent of those young people went to university or 10 or 15 then they would be that would be fine but then they wouldn't allow they wouldn't be allowed to be the dominant way that young people understand success so i think it's a real shame that people see universities now not as an opportunity to study knowledge for its own sake but as a necessary step in order to get into the job market and they get massive debt in order to do so and at the same time they're exposed to some pretty grim political regressive trends when, when you think about these political regressive trends, one of the things that I hear from a lot of my friends that are the calmer type or the, the people that don't really want to think that we're in a culture war or in a, in a low-grade civil war, they say, look, anytime you look at the age that you're in, it always feels like things are hotter. It always feels like things are more important, way bigger disaster. This is going to pass just like everything else. What do you think of that? Are, are, is it just that we always feel like we're in this hot of a situation? No, I, I think it's complacency on their part. Um, I wrote a book, um, first edition, I think it was four years ago, and then I, a second edition two years ago called I Find That Offensive. And then <laughs> I, I still find that offensive. And actually, that's how I know Lenora in terms of the cotton wool kids, the, the, that, that whole issue, because I was trying to understand actually by looking at American society, why free speech was no longer important to young people. And I identified that there was a safety first mentality and they all wanted to save spaces and to be looked after and protected and that that had happened in schools a lot. But anyway, I, I, was, I was talking about the growth of the culture wars on campus as well. And people wanted to say, oh, come on, Claire, you know, when you were at university, it was just like this, wasn't it? You know, lots of students arguing and fighting and being stroppy and rebelling. But this is, I think, a different mood. And you can tell, actually, um, and I argued, no, this is more profound than just young people. I think it's going to seep out into broader society and is affecting uh, many establishment organisations. And what's now known as woke, um, the fact that it's become so mainstreamed in recent months, particularly uh, in relation to Black Lives Matters and what's happened uh, to uh, George Floyd and the reaction to that and the growth of that internationally, would indicate that just under the surface, this culture wars was brewing. You know, it didn't just happen because one man was brutally killed. That was at the tip of an iceberg of something else. And in fact, the reaction to that brutal killing, whatever one thinks about it, 
and I was abhorred by it. And I think there's a real problem with police brutality in the US in particular. And I do think there's a problem with racism in the uh, criminal justice system in America. And you could have an argument about that. But we can all see that what's happened since then has got nothing to do with George Floyd. I mean, he's almost been forgotten as people pull down statues, decolonize curriculums, cancel culture has emerged. And when your friends say, oh no, it's just a passing phase, it will go away. It isn't because I think that what we're seeing is the reorganization of society around a very narrow and prescriptive set of opinions. And if you don't have them, you will be punished. You will be punished. And people are being punished as we speak and people are losing their livelihoods. I mean, it feels to me like a modern version of McCarthyism. People are being named, shamed, reputations ruined. I mean, there's nothing worse than being called a bigot. I mean, it will destroy your career because most people aren't bigots. You know, you want to say that someone's a bigot when they're a bigot. And even then you want to argue against them, not necessarily silence them. But if every, if, you know, if, if the majority of people become labeled racist or bigots or transphobes or homophobes or whatever it is, you end up in a situation where a small-ish elite are basically defining who is acceptable as a new elite. And a new elite is emerging. There is a shakeup, and you can tell. And the corporates um, in particular have gone along with this. I mean, every corporation now is trying to prove is bringing in people and saying are oh, we going to change we promise we're sorry and all the rest of it and you can see there's a big shake-up in 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 you know certainly in uk society and i and i think certainly in america it's even certainly more in in the u.s so i mean i i can relate to this i brought jordan peterson to the american farm bureau well before uh anybody really knew who he was and the bam it was like a matter of hours before it happened slate's writing about how you know, I'm a I'm a Nazi supporter, and and we're helping you know the the racist agenda of a crazy person. And you see what that does to your work environment. There are people that would secretly come and be like, "Hey, we're still friends, we're still cool," but they're going to meetings where people are calling for the CEO to publicly fire me. So it's yeah. it's yeah. it's this weird thing, well, we and I think a lot of people you. don't realize that corporations when you get this sort of um, surveillance mentality, when you get the sort of idea that, hey, if anybody's doing anything wrong, you come tell us and we'll take care of it, that actually works in the benefit of the corporation. They want no lawsuits. They want no problems. So if they can get their employees to report on each other, although it doesn't help for the long-term stability of that company, in the short term, it means that you get to go virtue signal. It means you get to know what's going on with all of your people and you keep destabilized. You don't have to worry about, um, it, you can knock people out that are a threat to your- um... Exactly, and it'll be used in a cynical way and it's being used, I can see it now. So um, it's so ironic because it's so antagonistic to even the idea of a kind of radical movement because, but you've got situations now where HR departments are mandating that staff do um, uh, white fragility training, uh, unconscious bias training. Have you and, taken and an unconscious, unconscious bias training no, class? No, I, luckily I'm my own boss, but I have, read <laughs> all, I have read all about it. This has now been brought in by the way to British schools because the teach, head teachers are so scared not to do anything that they're bringing in consultants. I mean, there's an industry of them. But anyway, you go off and you do this, but you're, you're told by your HR department, everyone's doing them on Zoom now. They do these courses. If you say, I don't want to do it, which somebody did who worked in the nuclear industry, in some friend of mine, 
the nuclear industry are doing unconscious. I mean, I don't want to what anyway. So they're doing this thing. This woman queried whether she wanted to do it. She said, I don't feel I need to do it. I don't need to prove I'm an anti-racist or I'm not a bigot and I don't want to waste my time. And um, basically she was told that this was going to be not only frowned upon, but it sh showed that she had unconscious biases because she wouldn't recognize that she needed to go on the training. Uh, she's, she's quite senior by the way. And, um, uh, and you know, so it wasn't, but she's a bit of a stroppy person anyway. Right. Yeah. It takes a certain kind of person the, to be able to push back there. Yeah. No, but what you've then got is you've got some people in the senior management team who probably want to get rid of her anyway. Right. Because she's not a yes woman. So suddenly this becomes a matter. And then, as you say, I mean, I've got endless anecdotes of this, but, but exactly as you've described, you then get a situation where the bosses are the good guys because they're putting on this training. They appeal to their staff if anyone is not complying. And you have a snitch situation whereby people are complaining about their colleagues and encouraged to name and shame and complain. And then the management can sit around and think, well, that person's always been stroppy, haven't they? They've always caused us trouble and they're earning a lot of money and uh, maybe now we can get rid of them, right? So people don't seem to understand that this is the mood. And anyway, as it happens, what business is it of an employer? What the private political views are of its staff? I mean, this is an outrage. I mean, there is such a thing as you as an individual are allowed to believe things i mean unless they're gonna um say that you can only have you know mandate your politics when they interview you and uh, that's not the same as discrediting an organization i understand if somebody goes out and kind of creates havoc in the public sphere and embarrasses the organization. but we're not talking about that now we're talking about people not getting in line and it's really you know get in your lane stay in your lane do as you're told it's a fantastic mechanism for disciplining the workforce but i also think it's just so uh it's so spineless of the of the corporations but not and the institutions and the establishment figures here who are so frightened that that you know these young radicals who are kicking they don't have to kick down the door you know what i mean they're, they're kicking an open door basically and is watching these kind of institutions crumble and, and thinking, well, what can we do? What can we do? And you think, say no. <laughs> well, know, I mean, it's, that's, much, that's much, much harder. So having worked at a corporation where they had, you know, the, the idea of I am a supporter of X group, then you would get yeah. a little badge for your name tag. Maybe it's a flag, maybe it's a, a symbol, and you would wear those around and you'd put them on your door. And if you didn't have the right flags on your door, everybody knew you're not moving up. And, and like, the, so the question then becomes, like for me, the answer was I'm, I'm never gonna thrive here. And so I wouldn't say that it was my primary reason for going off on my own, but I knew that it was never gonna happen for me if I stayed there. But what does somebody do that's a physicist that they can really only work in four or five places in the whole world because of their specialization, now if they resist, they may end up becoming a janitor. Is that equation yeah. worthwhile? No, no, of course. I, and I, I, for, for individuals, by the way, I don't condemn them. I understand people, you know, I have my family on a warning. You sit there, you say nothing, 
you do not object. I don't want everyone to lose their jobs, right? I know this, right? So I'm not trying to create martyrs of people resisting. I mean, people can, and I will support them, but I, I'm not naive. What I'm talking about is, I think, what does it say about a society whose leadership enforces these things in bad faith? Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's so often in bad faith and through cowardice. And I, I, I find it, I mean, you remember, I come from a Marxist background and I feel as though I've got more, um, you know, I, I, I used to argue with lots of people in the corporate sector that they had to argue for, for example, economic growth, right? Against uh, a lot of the anti-growth rhetoric that was coming from environmentalists. I'm saying it, I'm having arguments with people who run oil companies who sound as though they're Greenpeace activists and they're saying, oh, we can't say that. We can't say that. We can't say that. We've got to use this rhetoric and that rhetoric. And I said, well, have some bottle. I mean, you believe, as I do, that you need more wealth in society. You're going to have to do certain things to get that wealth. And but they wouldn't do it. So the irony was that you have a, you know, that they they wouldn't. They wouldn't even speak truth to their own power. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that, I, you, like... you pointed this out to me years ago, and it has always stuck with me that that the oil companies started presenting themselves as the biggest advocates of solar and wind energy, when really this was just a, a cynical ploy to be like, look, we're getting energy out there. But they knew that there were orders of magnitude more energy coming out of every oil well in the world than any wind farm. And, uh, and, and that's the path they chose, which was some, some kind, trying to stride the line between environmentalism and, and growth. And those two things probably yeah. always conflict. Yeah. So I'm just saying that, that, and that's what we've seen now in these cultural questions. Uh, the corporates themselves are willingly, um, you know, they're saying, I mean, we're about to face a great economic uh, catastrophe potentially because of coronavirus. I'm not blaming, you know, that's, it's had a very big impact on the world's economy um, many people will be destitute facing unemployment jobs being lost and there's one big um corporate that was sponsoring the festival that i that i run and they've just cancelled and they say well we're under enormous pressure you know and i understand you know we can't sponsor this year because of the um, the, the the impact of uh, the virus on our workplace and so on. So I hear all this. I'm actually reasonably sympathetic if disappointed and think, well, I suppose, you know, if you have to choose between sponsoring my events and somebody's job, I get it. And then the next day I heard that they were making a, 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 a multi-million pound donation to Black Lives Matters. And I just sat there and I just thought, a multi-pound donation, you know, to Black Lives Matter and associated groups. And I thought, great. So you, 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 what you were giving me was absolutely back change in your pocket and you couldn't afford it. And I was sympathetic because I thought, well, fair enough, we face a recession. But I mean, what I'm saying is that what kind of priorities are these in order to, they, they, they now are, actively politically engaging on one side of the culture wars and they they didn't need to do that did they nobody i don't even know that they were asked i can't blame i can't blame black lives matters or the associated different groupings that are involved in this 
I can't blame them for the fact that the corporates keep handing them money. I mean, they, they, it's almost like, oh, awful. Anyway, so I find that dis, distressing that things have gone in that way because it also closes down debate. That's the main thing. You know, if it was that a corporate decided that it wanted to support a particular group and it could be Greenpeace or it could be anything else, I mean, that's fine, right? I mean, that's, you're the, you know, you run a company or you run, that's fine. But when it becomes the only narrative that you're allowed to embrace and that if you don't embrace it, that you're somehow treated as though you are a lesser human being or that you are politically dodgy, that's when it becomes dangerous because that's not just then kind of doing good works. That's a kind of enforced political outlook that's very narrow and actually demonizes anyone who doesn't go along with it. Well, it, it comes across to me as religion, right? It comes across to yeah. me as we have these beliefs about what morality really is and what you ought to do and these things that are nebulous that in ordinary modern society we would say hey those are left up to you and your family and your church and your community whatever but now we're saying not only are am i going to publicly espouse these beliefs but i'm going to force you to do it too and if you don't then you're not in the religion you're an outcast you're a heretic and and people forget, I think, because we've had such a long time with peace between religion and regular society, that when one group gets in control of deciding who's a heretic, you start running into some real dangerous times. I, I agree. I, I, but that's also the thing is, in the modern era, we've understood. We got over the Reformation. We got over the religious wars, we thought, or largely in the, in the modern Western world. And we would be in a situation whereby you had religious freedom. So you could be an atheist, but you could also be a Pentecostal or you could be a Catholic or you could be a Muslim or you could be a, 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 a Buddhist or whatever, right? And you could kind of, and these were private matters. You publicly expressed them in terms of your, uh, your, your personal morality and your um, going to church or, 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 or praying or, or, or whatever way you chose to worship. But where, you know, but as you say, in the medieval days, I mean, this is bad history, but, you know, it was like, if you don't agree with this, you are a heretic and you will be burnt at the stake. Now, obviously, we're not burning people at the stake or some parts of the world, sadly, that, that still kind of can happen. But broadly speaking, that is considered, that's why I call it regressive. That's what we think to be in an unenlightened time. But we are now in a situation where morally, you're absolutely right. It does feel like heresy to go against what is then this kind of demand that you publicly acclaim something. By the way, I think that that was summed up by that, that slogan that's just emerged recently, which is silence is violence. Now, that's, that's an extraordinary slogan, because what that says is you're not even allowed to you, you, you're not even allowed to just keep quiet. You have to say that you agree. You have to wear the badge. You, you are enforced to take the knee. You have to put the black. Uh, uh, I mean, I know people who work for major arts organizations in this country who were reprimanded for not having a black square around their Instagram. So they didn't do anything, but they didn't want to play some black square around Instagram, you know, virtue signaling game. And they were reprimanded by managers for not doing that because it would bring the organization into disrepute. And these are major arts organizations in the UK. I mean, atrocious. So it, that's like heresy, isn't it? You are yeah, a heretic. I, 
I, uh, I, I, so I run a book club and this month we're reading 1984. I, I, somebody had mentioned it and I thought, well, we'll just refresh it. I am shocked by, and this may be the fact that he just wrote a book that's like a horoscope. No matter what time you're looking at, it looks like this. But I can tell you that the two minutes of hate that they, that they have all the people do. So anybody that's never read the book is in the very beginning. When every, every day you have two minutes where they show on these screens, the enemy, all the terrible things, and everybody is supposed to yell and scream and throw things. And that's what it feels like because they're watching you. And if you are not big brother and if you're not screaming loud enough or you don't have enough passion, then they just come pluck you out and you're gone. And it feels like this is very, very similar. I think that's really right. I mean, I, I, I do, you know, 1984 is a fantastic novel. Orwell was spot on. But, you know, when I've read it over the years, you can see trends going in that direction. Now, I feel like he's understated. I mean, he's <laughs> describing reality. I mean, it's not a dystopian future. He's describing the world we live in, isn't he? I mean, you're absolutely right. That's why at the moment people keep saying, oh my God, in 1984, it says this. I mean, that two minutes of hate, you could see that that might be where it would end up, but you'd sort of, it was a, it was, exaggerated for effect to give you a warning now we live through those two minutes of hate as a as a a, a kind of norm i mean it's the normal thing that happens and it's not just on social media sadly um and actually on campuses you've seen this american campuses there's there's endless examples of literally students screaming at academics there's the screaming around the statues i mean the statue toppling in in the us which has got completely out of hand but they're not just saying remove that statue please it's like a kind of frenzy and violence i mean it's against an inanimate object and you think why are you getting so frenzied about a statue of christopher columbus but it's, it takes on this kind of, re- and that's like the kind of religious, it's like a religious frenzy. It's like, wow, you know, you talk about pent up rage and uh, it's, it, it's not. So your friends who say, oh, it's a passing phase. Well, I mean that, you know, if we don't al- force a debate, that's what I want. I want to force a debate. Something extraordinary has happened in America over the last 48 hours, which is, a group of, mo- a, a, you know, a, a, there was a letter printed in Harper's, a fairly moderate letter saying, can we have civil discussion and come together? And this is very divisive and we need free speech. And 150 of the great and the good signed it. And it was quite broad in terms of across different lines. And I noticed it because I've launched something with some other people here called Don't Divide Us, which is similar, although a more rank and file version. Ours is kind of like ordinary people saying it, but this was anyway, the great and the good, Harper's publisher. In the last uh, 12 hours, uh, the people who've signed it are being hounded. Some of them have retracted uh, already. Oh, really? Yeah, several have retracted because they're, because, because they're being accused of being on the list of names with people that they don't agree with. And the big bet noir at the moment is J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling unbelievably has become the devil incarnate in woke circles because she's accused of being a transphobe. And Give me the background on this because I see it. It it makes very little sense to me. And so I just kind of stay away from it. But what is is all that around? How did she get embroiled in this? What happened? 
<laughs> yeah, God knows. But um, because <laughs> I suppose they exactly it's very hard to explain, isn't it? Because quite actually in the UK anyway, they, they the government and a conservative government at that tried to bring in self-identification, which is that basically you could just proclaim that you are a woman or a man if you were biologically born into the other sex and this self-identification um has led to a certain amount of chaos and uh, certainly the the aim of it so it started to be that because then what would happen was you could proclaim you could say that you're a woman i can't argue against you and then because then i'm trying so if you just said to me now I am a woman. I have to now call you she and her and accept that. And that is very different than you struggling with what gender you are and going for, you know, uh, medical intervention or talking it through or thinking about it. But this is just like a self-proclamation. The problem then is, is that um, if you declare that you are a woman, I might say, well, OK, maybe you're a trans woman, but you're not a woman. And, you know, that that by the way me saying that will get me cancelled i've said it before but you've got to say that trans women somebody who proclaims that they are a woman is a woman and so obviously for a lot of feminists this is unacceptable so the feminist movement is now split because that means that for example you could if you got arrested tomorrow you could say well i'm a woman so i demand i go into a women's jail and so there's been instances where People have been arrested as rapists, but they proclaim themselves as women and have gone into a woman's jail. I mean, if you can get your head around that. And then there's women's refuges, which are women only, but now women is if trans. So it's a complicated story. And even, so I have a number of friends who are trans and I don't just say that as cover because of what I've just said, but because not everybody who is a, a, a transition to another sex agrees with this orthodoxy right they don't you know people who have transitioned don't necessarily uh, adopt this very narrow particularly prescriptive hysterical of approach they call themselves trans women not women but anyway jk rowley famous author you know multi-millionaire because she created um i can't remember what she harry was, potter called Harry, Harry Potter, Potter yeah. she's a creative writer, yeah, Harry Potter, I mean, untouchable, you know, lefty feminist, you know, loved by everyone, national treasure, internationally renowned, multi-millionaire, I assume, because of uh, the success of her books and the films and so on. She came out and said, well, I think that a woman is a woman and a trans woman is not a woman. And a woman is a biological entity and you cannot just proclaim that you can be a woman. So she is now considered to be a transphobic bigot. And she has not backed down on several attempts to get her to back down. Uh, some people resigned from her publishers, uh, either authors, because they said they wouldn't, didn't want to be published by the same. Uh, the publishers in that instance held their nerve and said, well, you go and get published somewhere else then, which was quite funny, because I do think the publishers probably thought she earns us a fair bit of money, no disrespect, but your minor authors on our list you go off but anyway whatever they but but there's been attempts so she's jk rowling is cancelled jk rowling signed the letter in the in harper's and that's one of the reasons why now some of the people are retracting but you know noam chomsky's on there um 
but then uh, Barry Wise and, you know, so there's kind of a left-right mix on there. Um, and so people are saying, well, if I'd have, when I signed the letter, if I'd have known that J.K. Rowling was on the letter, well, it's like, well, what's that got to do with it? I mean, you read the letter. Did you agree with the letter? And the letter is about a challenge to cancel culture. So it is so ironic that this letter in America is now the subject of cancel culture. And people who sign it are being hounded and demonized. So and, in that and what is the way, like, it's such an interesting thing because uh, what do you do if, if you're targeted? Does this mean that anybody that works for someone else, which everybody works for somebody at some level, right? That, yeah. that we're, is, is it that the people that have money need to make the decisions that they're not going to back down to it? Is it like, it's so complicated because it does feel like if you push this hard enough, it does become about power. And like when debates become about power, they're not about the ideas, they're about who's strongest. And then we get into really dangerous places because eventually the people with the power, when they feel it being threatened, will react. Well, I do think that probably uh, in a lot of um, issues politically over the last few years, there is a majority of people in society who just think the world's gone mad and don't agree with it. And I think that we do have to talk to those people. I mean, first of all, the danger of not doing that will force people to into extremes. I mean, I've been concerned myself that if you have let people constantly say that to accept, I mean, I, I, if you champion Martin Luther King and saying that what's important is somebody's character and not their skin color, that is now considered to be racist, by the way. That is a denial of race. I mean, how did that happen? But I do think most people think that. And the danger is if you force people to say the most important thing about them is that they're white or whatever their ethnicity, but it, you will create a white nationalist movement. You will fuel the, the, the very forces that are actually a small group but the alt-right, the, 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 white, the white separatists, they do exist, they're small, but they're beginning to, you know, have an influence because people are forced, you're not allowed to be. Just, I mean, these are immutable, I mean, we, it's not, being white isn't an achievement, we're just born white, we're born black, we're born whatever colour we are. These are things about us, they are the least significant things in our lives, of course. And I understand that if you're subject to uh, uh, being treated unequally because of your skin color. If, for example, you're black and in parts of America, historically, you were treated uh, like an animal or like a second class citizen because of your skin color. But that's what we want to overcome. We want to transcend that. But that is no longer the aim of identity politics. It wants to keep people in their ethnicities as saying that's the dominant feature. Anyway, I still think the majority of people who are um, uh, uh, black hate all this stuff the majority of people who are white hate all this stuff they're not extreme on either side and they need leadership so you say what happens is i think that the people i think intellectual leaders political leaders need to speak out and talk to the vast majority of people and you know make it clear that this terrible explosion of uh, uh, hatred the, the two minutes hate that's turning into months of hate is a smallish group of people and we shouldn't bow down to it. I'm not saying it's an easy task that, but that's the way I see it, that there is a moderate civil 
commitment to free speech and open debate that needs to be fought for. It may be a Rorschach test a little bit for me, but I don't know if you saw on the news, but in the United States on the 4th of July, I have never seen so many fireworks in my life. Um, in my neighborhood, which normally is just like a really calm bunch of kids all around. So people don't, they normally have sparklers and little pop rocks. But this year, there were people doing aerial demonstrations that must have cost them thousands of dollars. And, uh, and part of it could be that they were just tired of being locked up. But a lot of it felt like they didn't care about the rules anymore because the rules didn't care about them. And that's what it, that's what it felt like. And, and I heard from people all over the country that that's what happened. I suspect that's true. I think that's, I thought the same. I thought it was a demonstration of a demonstrate, a kind of, not a demonstration, but an, a, a, a visible way of saying, actually, we don't hate America. We don't think we're racist scum. We don't think that we, we don't want to go along with all this. It's not all like that. You know, uh, you know, what's happening in Portland and Atlanta and some of these things that are going on, you know, that's not us. Right. And, I think that, I thought exactly the same. I think that's exactly what it was. I mean, I, we're speculating, but I felt the same. Let's, let's talk a little bit about like why people are drawn to some of the ideas. Like I actually don't know anybody that would describe themselves as a Marxist or that at one point they were. What was, what was drawing to those ideas and, or maybe what is still drawing to those ideas for you? Well, I mean, I, I, I actually, I thought that, um, I mean, it really was like I was a typical lefty student and it really was a long time ago, but I, I don't mean to, I, I still consider myself, I suppose, on the left. Really, I didn't think that capitalism worked well enough. In other words, I thought that it wasn't productive enough and I thought in the end it didn't allow enough people to benefit from economic development and growth. I mean, that would be the simplest way of saying it. And I didn't think, therefore, I thought the market wasn't the most rational way of organizing distribution and or production so you know that's a kind of lots of people about what marxism is usually kind of ill-informed and it's like a you know philosophical outlook that that's associated with uh, that's got some depth to it i can't do credit to but i but i think that I, I did also in this country, I suppose I was also um, supportive of the trade unions during the uh, the miners' strike. I thought that the attempt by Margaret Thatcher to smash the, the, the coal miners and the strikes, you know, that was a very big dividing line in, in society. And I was on, you know, I'm from a working class background. I had no notion of being part of the Conservative Party, which was an establishment party very much in those days, maybe less so now, was associated with representing the bosses and the posh people and all that. You know, you could see I would be more drawn to the left. And I always thought the Labour Party was utterly useless in this country. So I never had much to do with them. So, and a lot of people were involved in uh, radical left-wing politics when I was at college and I carried on doing that. So, you know, I think we were drawn to different ideas for different reasons and it's not always but i do think that those times have changed by the way and when lm magazine which was not living much than the one that i started it was you know after the end of the cold war and you know it really was like these this left right labels don't work in the same way so i've always been very pro freedom and pro free speech which people often say oh i can't understand anyone on the left but actually there's a tradition of that on the left as well um 
I, I, I'm, I'm, I, the big things for me are agency that people can make their own history and make their own lives self-create, you know, that, 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 and, um, uh, that's part of enlightenment thinking that always appealed to me. And, and that's again, got a tradition on the left, but I don't, I now don't feel as though the left right thing works. I suppose I'm more, people call me a libertarian, but a left-wing libertarian, but I, I, I've now, I now kind of don't even know how to describe myself. And so I just think, I try and say, well, what do I think of this idea? You know, and I try and read widely and think about things uh, rather than worrying what labels people give me, apart from when they try and delegitimize me by calling me a bigot, which is what people do now to, to try and stop that. I, I'll fight against that, but they can call me anything after that. So a lot of people will say I'm, right-wing now even though i don't consider myself to be right-wing but i mean it's not as though in this country anyway that you can describe exactly what the conservative right is because they're all split over things as well you know what i mean so it's it, it's it's quite a difficult uh going into the details of it that happened recently was brexit and i i, I there's always been a long tradition on the left actually of arguing to leave the European Union because it was anti-democratic and in position from outside against popular sovereignty and national sovereignty. And I, I just voted leave. I didn't think it was a big deal. I didn't think leave was gonna win necessarily. And then when leave won, the way that, you know, people from all of the political parties kind of united together to say they were gonna overturn the vote, then <laughs> politicize things even more right and so suddenly i became very i i myself even in my these later years you know i was so outraged that they would be so anti-democratic i couldn't believe it and um that but that split the country and what i was going to say was you you would find yourself and often people would you know i'd be in meetings um around brexit where and i remember this one really well where one guy said you know i i'm a trade union activist and i've never met a conservative before and another woman saying, well, I'm a conservative councillor and I'm now going to vote for the Brexit party in that instance. And I've never met a trade unionist before. And there was people from different ethnicities, people from different backgrounds. And we were on the leave side, the Brexit side. And so suddenly you felt like those old divisions were no longer the important ones. Right. And and so I think that's an interesting and you you, you can see the shake up in American politics. I mean whatever one thinks about Donald Trump, he's certainly not your typical Republican, right? That was a big shakeup of the Republican party and the Democrats, who knows what they represent, but you know, is it Bernie Sanders or not? I mean, I know he's not got the, I know he's not standing, but what, I mean, is, does he represent, is it, is it AOC? What yeah, is I mean, a, like there's a Democrat anymore, right? We don't know, do we? I, I think one of the things that I don't hear talked about right now, as far as the political, I'm totally with you that, that the definitions that used to be right and left, they don't work anymore. But when you look at the political scene, at least the, the presidential scene, we're putting up people that are almost 80 years old. Like we scoured the whole country and the only people we could find were in their 80s. I'm not against people that are older and wiser and, and have uh, vigor and can do it. But in some regards, it appears to me that you're talking about the old and instantiated system versus anything else that isn't what we've done for the last 30 years. 
And I have a, a real hesitance about making lots of political change really fast because then you see the divisions that come out in something like Brexit, right? That was so jarring to people that everybody had to scatter and choose new sides. But nothing about that is uh, stable or inherently safe. But I think that that, I wonder when the age divide in the US starts being exploited or at least brought up in the same way that race and gender and sexuality all has been. Well, I think that partly there is a, a, a generational divide of some sort. And I do think that that's one of the nerve wracking aspects of the present culture wars because uh, you know, it is largely young people. I, I, we've talked about the corporates, but, but you know, it's, young people see this as their moment but I do think class is very important. And you saw that with Trump and we saw that with Brexit here, which was, you know, people would say all young people support staying in the European Union. Whereas I saw it differently. <coughs> I mean, uh, the majority of young people did support that, but the majority of young working class people didn't, if you know what I mean. And a, th and a third, uh, by the way, of, of people from different ethnic groups voted to leave the European Union, third, even though they tried to say everyone who was Brexit was racist. So you've got all these kind of mix-ups, but I do think that there is a generational issue in as much as I don't feel as though the political parties represent new blood. It's not just that you've got old leaders, but even here I feel like, I feel as though those these are the parties of the past in a way. Um, and you can see, it. I mean, you know, all around Europe, not, not just around Europe, but in Europe anyway, you know, you've got Macron is now not a, from a, a traditional party. I mean, he's he's kind of like represents the establishment, but he's, he's just everything's fracturing. All of the old parties are falling apart. The Social Democrats, the Conservatives in every country are struggling. So there's an, an end of an old era and the, the re-emergence of a new one not has not happened and so what you can then get is a kind of moment like now where you can have leaders who will emerge around things like culture wars and identity politics to fill the absence of leadership politically you see what i mean so there's a there's a basically there's a, a vacuum and i so i don't think this is i don't think they are the new political parties it's more that they're they've rushed in as as you know nature reports a vacuum and all the rest because the political parties are not to it yeah and, and i think that that's that's the space that. where you get uh really unstable you know the trotskyites who who usher in a new wave of political thinking and then you have the leninists and stalinists that say hey thanks for paving the way we're just going to knock all you guys out kill you all and take the power and yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the situation yeah. that you run into there may be people that have empathy pouring out of every one of their pores and they are just really concerned about the plight of other people. But what they don't realize is once you open up this gate, then force becomes really um, a, a, like actual power and the use of violence can be used to transform party. And it can happen in a matter of weeks. Like it can happen yeah. quick. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I felt you, you mentioned earlier about civil war this is quite dramatic story stuff isn't it but when um brexit nearly wasn't delivered regardless of whether you liked it or not you, you have to understand the the bitterness of people who felt that they voted in good faith and then and then there was this attempt at stopping it and people 
voted for change. They wanted to leave the European Union, but it became to represent them taking back control, ordinary people having some control over their destiny and their lives, shaking up British politics and so on. And then suddenly all these people try and stop it, you know, who are in power and, and this created great bitterness. But, the, but the, the main thing I was going to say was the antagonism was so great, so intense, so bitter that people used to say to me uh, uh, before, before eventually uh, the, the last election, you know, I never knew why there would, what civil war would feel like. And now I do. I mean, it was so vicious. It was a vicious mood. People could, families were splitting. And I think that, you can see, you can feel that at the moment as well. I mean, we're in an extraordinary position because of lockdown that, that intensifies everything. That doesn't help. Or not, not everyone's locked down, but it's not normal. You know, you're not, I'm not living a normal life, right? I, 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 I am living this peculiar life. I kind of went out to meet someone face to face today and I thought, oh, this is, this is quite novel. You know what I mean? And I, and I suddenly, re and I had a really great conversation with them and I thought I'm not doing this that much now. I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not socially engaged in the same way. And I'm, I'm, and I am quite socially engaged. But you know, for a lot of people, they've just not left their house for months, and the normal sort of uh, interaction. So it's intensified by that. But there is like a kind of civil war, this nasty atmosphere underneath. And people, if you're frightened to speak, and there's this sort of overwhelming sense of fury and hate people get scared it does feel scary and 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 so i think that you know i i set myself the task even though i'm pretty obviously on one side of this culture war in as much as i hate identity politics and i'm not where can i go against it because i'm from the left i'm an anti-racist and i fought for women's you know uh, equality and i kind of you know from that tradition i feel that at least i can try and try and calm things down a bit or try keep it down keep it civil keep things contained not not hide them but try and diffuse some of it and that's what i've tried what we've tried to do in terms of the debates we're organizing what i've personally done in terms of broadcasting and so on i've written quite a lot of articles just saying look we've just got to take a step back from this we can't just keep rushing towards this so that's what but it's it's not it's a scary moment i think historically you know, I think there's a really important place for the people that were a part of the movements that were before, like you were talking about the, the women's equality or, or feminism. I have a good friend that when she started talking about being a part of the feminist movement, she's in her late 50s or so, early 60s. I, I was a little bit, I was kind of scoffing her in my mind. And then I was like, wait a second, this is somebody you like and you trust and is somebody that works hard. Listen to what she's saying. And you begin to realize like my kickback on what's going on now starts to shade a period of time that I knew nothing about. And so you like, it's very important that the women that fought for equal rights come back and remind them like, hey, everybody, it really was really pretty bad here. And we made these changes and these were changes that were good, but we're seeing things go further than I or the movement wanted just so everybody knows they're not one in the same thing. They're different things. That's right. I mean, that's very important. I think, you know, on the race question, on the women's question, all of these things, there were massive changes made. You know, when my parents came to the UK from Ireland, uh, uh, when they, they moved to, to Britain, you know, there really was uh, pictures in the, in, the, in the windows that said, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. 
and I remember my parents telling me this and they my mum said you know for two years after they arrived she kind of didn't like speaking out loud because people would hear her accent and of course if you're black you can't hide that you're black there was prejudice open explicit prejudice you know in this country in the UK anyway I, when I was you know in my 20s and 30s the police did target young black people. They did. That was what they did, right? And with the and there was racist uh, attacks all the time, organised attacks against Asian families by racists who call themselves racist. I mean, there was no ambiguity. They said, "Go home, you so and so and so." So they firebomb houses. So those of us who fought against that bigotry things have improved enormously you know when women were you know i expected to do nothing you know who are you going to marry you know that was your fulfillment you know who would what kind of guy can you marry to to fulfill yourself you know no expectation you'd have a career all of these things all of these things historically and in recent history in recent history but then we won a lot of those battles i don't mean we won all of them but we did win some of them so now it's so galling to be told that things have got worse than they've ever been and that, you know, racism in this country is as bad as slavery. It's like, no, it isn't. It's not even as bad as the 1980s, right? It's not, we are not talking about that at all, right? And so you, but I can understand that now, even I, from that tradition, when somebody says, I'm an anti-racist feminist, I feel like running out the room. Because I think, oh my God, they'll be bringing in censorship or they'll be done. Because these, the movements that I was part of have been completely hijacked by identity politics. And I, I keep saying identity politics. This is important because what it says is, you know, I just have to say to you, we were having this conversation, I just have to say to you, as a woman, I find that offensive. Right. And that's it. That's meant to shut you up. Yeah. And what the hell I'm am say, I going to say to that? Right. I'm exactly. not going to be like, hey, and, and toughen it, up exactly. or you're strong. Like, I, the exactly. other day I was on Twitter and I saw a woman who was um, interacting with the Texas Farm Bureau. Now you're from the UK and you can even say, that's probably a pretty tough place for a woman, right? And so she was saying, hey, it's kind of hard to break into this old boys network. And I, was, and I wrote her on Twitter because she's a friend of mine. I was like, hey, don't worry. Like you kick ass, you can take it. Basically saying if anybody could, could march to this old boys network, like it can be you. She was fine with it. But I got so much hate for, for me saying like, hey, you're, you're one of the toughest people I know. You kick ass. Da, da, da. So I guess my lesson out of that was if it has anything to do with two X chromosomes, better not say anything. Don't compliment somebody. Don't give them a word of encouragement. Don't, don't do any of that because that's all danger. And then that becomes the equivalent of not going out and seeing people, the equivalent of wearing a mask every time you interact with them because you're putting up a facade where you have thoughts that are supportive of them, but you're too afraid to say them because of the way that culture has manifested. Exactly. And that's what, and it gets narrower and narrower, doesn't it? So, you know, you can't say, you, you, you know, if you feel that if you say something about uh, lesbian and gay liberation and equality, that someone's, you're going to say the wrong thing, that someone's going to accuse you of being homophobic, you say, okay, I won't say anything, you know, if the only if, if, if and so on so what happens is you get you withdraw into a narrower sphere and we're all i mean i um 
you know, one of the, the slogans, again, of the Battle of Ideas Festival has been get out of your echo chamber. And we were saying it before it was fashionable. But actually, <laughs> we're, we're now going, we're being forced into smaller echo chambers. We're being, you know, we kind of lampoon, or I certainly do, or, you know, safe spaces where you just feel comfortable. And you think, how can students at 18 demand safe spaces where they feel safe? You know, you're meant to be 18 and fighting and, and, and arguing fighting. and, and like, oh, did you see safe. how dumb that person exactly. I know and you definitely don't want to be kind of like hiding away saying I don't want to hear any views that I might that might disturb me because actually it's the very exciting time when you're encountering all these exciting new views but anyway that's kind of well actually we're all being forced into safe spaces because we're actually frightened to say as we speak as we as we see you know, and there's nothing more corrupting of a society when everybody thinks the emperor's got new clo got no clothes on and can't say it. I mean, if you're if you're standing there and 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 we all know and you can't say it, so you just retreat and retreat, and it's it's a silencing. It's a very very and it, and it's demoralising, but it also means how will we ever get anything done? I don't want. I want to be able to. Or I, you know, I. I want to be able to say to you, I agree with you on this. Let's let's work together on doing this. But I disagree with you on lots of other things. But who cares, right? I don't want to have to check everything you've ever thought and check your social media feeds in case somebody thinks that because I'm talking to you, that means I agree with you on something else. I want you to be able to frankly say to me, this is rubbish that you said that. I mean, that's the way you honour people, right? I mean, if somebody flatters you all the time, you know that they're lying. I mean, you know, the people who are closest to me are the most critical. That's good, isn't it? They will say, look, Claire, you know, on the telly the other night on afterwards, right? Or you didn't explain that well. Or That's how you learn. That's how we all learn. And that means they were listening to me. They weren't just kind of tick boxing. Yeah, very good, very good. They were actually taking me seriously. And that's the way we honor each other by, by, by listening. We don't, if somebody says something you don't agree with, you say, oh, I don't agree with you on that. And that's fine. That, that is what, that's how we all learn. That's the thing. We take each other and ourselves seriously by critiquing each other. That is effectively being banned in this country at the moment. And well, in, in, and in America. And we are never going to, I mean, how we think we're going to innovate scientifically or with anything, if everyone is frightened to speak or frightened to say the wrong thing, even in terms of business and innovation and scientific discovery people will be hemmed in and will play safe and will never take risks and, and never communicate with people in case it upsets them that's not going to lead to great inventions and exciting dynamic societies i i love that idea that listening to somebody and giving them feedback is honoring them because i think it's 100 percent true the people i don't care about I don't give them feedback about how they did or what they could do to get better. It's the people that I'm like, hey, I see potential in you or I see that you could be greater than you are right now and I'm gonna tell that to you. And when, yeah. when we don't do that, when we remove it from society because I'm afraid that if you don't like what I say, you will end my career, that's, that's terrible. So Claire, I wanna finish off just talking a little bit about the battle of ideas because um, I think that there are people all over the world, um, like the ag community. So we became in contact because Monsanto went around and they were like, hey, we need a space where we can talk about our perspective. And everywhere we go, people tell us no. And you could bring stacks of money, you could bring experts, you could bring whatever you wanted, and people would be like, nope. And I remember the sensation of coming to you and having you say, 
we'll give you a platform to talk, but it's not going to be about what you necessarily want to talk about. We're going to create a conversation that forces you to think about things. And I, I just remember feeling like, thank God this is here. Thank God, because whether Monsanto is right or wrong, everyone is better served for having seen a debate around that. So what is the future of the battle of ideas? And if people are listening to this, what can they do to support it so that it can go the distance? Yeah, thank you for, for asking that because it, it's always been difficult, but there's two challenges that we have. So we've always, we've never um, received state support from the UK because we're not, we never ticked enough boxes to be able to get that kind of government money, which in the UK, that's how a lot of these kind of organizations work. And you can imagine having heard me that we're not going to be getting any of the corporate money that they're giving out to Black Lives Matter. <laughs> like that. Um, but it's also the case that over recent years, the corporate sector has, I think, become increasingly risk averse and um, has also become more politically correct. And so when we've, we, we've always depended on lively uh, corporate support for our work, not because they, uh, as, as you noted, not because they were able to demand a platform from us, but we said, well, we're interested in engineering. You're a big engineering company, if it was an engineering company, you know, we, because we believe in having these discussions because we really want to uh, see the economy develop and we think there's real challenges, et cetera, et cetera. So whoever you are in alcohol companies, uh, engineering companies, whatever, and of course, the agricultural sector is one of the big things for us because we've always been very enthusiastic about modernizing agriculture. We think that there's far too much sentimentality about small farms and, you know, food production is essential for society moving forward, all of these things. So we go and try and get corporate sponsorship and we're not getting very much of it at the moment, like none, partly because of the uncertainties created by coronavirus of course a lot of the corporate sector is now stymied and worried and not investing in things like sponsorship and secondly because they've become preoccupied with sponsoring events and and individuals who maybe are safer so we think that the battle of ideas is it's not like the riskiest thing it's like do you think that ideas matter and debate should be had and if you can give us some financial support that would be great because I did say before we started filming that we can last till the end of the year but we haven't got any reserves so we've just about I've just about kept my small team of six going through the the, the, the government uh, offered here to pay people's wages if you sack them that sack them laid them off but I decided not to do that because I felt that it was important we carried on on principle having the debates. And so we never took that money. We never took the furloughed money. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. It, that just means that I've run out of money. So what that means is <laughs> that what that means is that we're going to have the Battle of Ideas Festival. We're going to try and do two live events before the end of the year in um, Buckingham University and in Buxton. Um, uh, dome in the north of England in, in, in Midlands. Um, we're going to have the big festival in as soon as we can physically get everyone together. Uh, we hope January, February, and we need sponsors and supporters and people who want to help us out. So if any of your listeners are in a position to do that, you would be, I hope, making a contribution to a, a more enlightened society in which censorship is not the norm and in which civilized debate and listening to each other and debating with each other is really given the kind of uh, uh, platform it needs. I, I think this is, we're in urgent 
desperately desperate need of more Battle of Ideas festivals all over the world. And we don't want to lose the one that exists. So I, I, so I, I, I can tell you that not, not only the one that we went to the Barbican, where it's this giant conference and there's things everywhere. You held one uh, in East Berlin, where yeah. I had a chance to go. And it was about oh, right. Martin Luther. And it happened to be on the 500th birthday of him nailing the 95 theses to the wall. So I'm at this, I'm at this like little theater and there's maybe 50, 100 people in the audience. And the guy down at the bottom that's speaking with another person is talking about how Martin Luther was actually a genocidal maniac and, you know, we shouldn't like him at all. And then another person having a completely different point of view and my mind smashed into a wall because I, had, I, I was like, I didn't even know there was anybody that didn't like think Martin Luther was great and that this was yeah. just obvious progress. And I think about how many things in my life that that changed, that something that I thought was so fundamental, Martin Luther, his 95 theses to the wall, everybody knows this is good. When you look at that from another angle and you see something is different about something you thought was fundamental to who we are as a civilization, then you start saying, what else can I go take a look at where I shift the angle? And literally yeah. the only place on earth that I know to do this is what you're doing. So if there's anything we can do to support this, I'll advertise your events. I'll talk about it. I'll bring you on whatever I can do. Cause I think this Thank may you. be one of the most important things in, in the world right now. And I, and I think I just Monsanto is a really good example of that, by the way, because you know, in order, I, I know you're not there now, but uh, when Monsanto... Well, they're not there anymore. They're, they're gone. They're not there now. No, it's Bayer. <laughs> and, and Bayer did support us for a while, but then that stopped. But anyway, but when Monsanto, when we took the Monsanto sponsorship, we got a lot of stick for that. But the, but the thing I was going to say was, you know, what you want to say to people is Monsanto at the time, now Bayer, but Monsanto's, you know, you might hate Monsanto, but they are a very important company that are doing very big things, right? And, and you need to, you can't just demonize them. You need to talk to them. And I wanted to say to Monsanto, you can't just get away with throwing corporate power around and putting up a banner and hoping that you're going to kind of have an easy ride, right? You are powerful people and you want to justify why you're doing this on GMOs, come and argue it, right? Or whatever it is. And, and I think that's the way we should treat each other, which is, there's no good guys and bad guys in a straightforward way like this, right? We need to be open if we're going to take things forward. We need to be able to say, and we'll learn things that we didn't know. Because one of the other things about the Battle of Ideas is we do have small events throughout the UK and small events throughout Europe as well, as well as this big festival. And we do try and do it throughout the year at some level, even though the, the, the sort of big festival focus is in the autumn. So I really would like... Um, yeah, to encourage people also to think about, you know, can we have debates in our local area? Can we be doing this kind of thing? You know, we should be hearing from people we wouldn't, you know, people who just listen to me if they have done, and probably your audience maybe thinks, my God, I've just had an hour of listening to a Marxist, right? This is <laughs> They're sitting in their tractors maybe, right now. And maybe, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and maybe it's not so frightening, you know? And maybe it's not so, or, you know, who thought that, right? Because these labels don't always work. And that's what's interesting about them. That's what makes it interesting. That's what makes us as humans interesting. Um, so we've all got things to learn. Well, Claire Fox, you are one of my favorite people in the world. I think you are oh, an important so nice. person. If somebody wanted to find you on Twitter, what would they, uh, what would they look up? So it's Fox underscore Claire. 
Um, so Fox underscore Claire, and it's C-L-A-I-R-E. And I'm very active on Twitter. Oh, yeah. that's uh, My, my I, audience I, loves I, the Twitter. So. Yeah, I, I, I have to say, I have to say that uh, me on Twitter, I, it's a, I, especially since lockdown, I've become like a child, like a teenager, always on Twitter. But yeah, no, follow me on Twitter. I'll follow you back. Start a conversation. I love all that. That's great. Amen. And, and you'll let me know when this is out and I can tweet it out to everyone. Oh, it'll be out this afternoon. I don't make my audience oh, wait. Right. So we'll just chop it and throw it. So. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Claire, so much. This is great. Next time you're in the UK, we're actually going for a pint in a pub. Amen. I love it. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Well, that's going to do it for this week's interview with Claire Fox. I hope you enjoyed this. This is one of those conversations that can only happen because I had a chance to go out and meet all of these people throughout my life, and I've stayed in contact with them over the years. So I hope that you are doing that with your connections too. Whoever you meet along the way, somebody that interests you, somebody that you admire, make sure you're writing down their name, you're staying in contact with them, because then when a moment like today comes up, you can write somebody like Claire Fox and say, hey, why don't you come on and explain to me how you view the world, how you view it from the other side of the ocean, how you view it from being somebody that was a Marxist as a woman that fought for uh, feminist rights. All of these things can happen if you meet people, admire them, stay in touch with them, and then call them when you need them. So I hope that you're thinking about that for yourself. Also, at the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned the Telepresence Professional Basics class. I hope you'll go check that out. It is a really interesting class. Everyone that has taken it, and I now have, I think, somewhere along the lines of 50 people having taken it, uh, it's an exciting course. It's one that people really find that it's done them a lot of good, and I'm excited for you to take it. So check out the link below and the discount code for $10 off for podcast listeners. Thanks so much, and I should be back maybe tomorrow with another interview. Ah!